Welcome to this series of Clifford Chance Construction Law Conversations, where we'll discuss key legal and commercial risk topics for stakeholders in the Australian construction industry, drawing on our extensive experience of successfully advising clients in some of the most high profile and high value construction and infrastructure disputes in Australia and the APAC region. Today we'll be discussing the impending changes to the security of payment law in Western Australia, which has significant implications for all stakeholders in the delivery of major construction projects and is intended to significantly rebalance project risk in favour of contractors and subcontractors and on and onto owners. My name's Sean Marriott and I'm a counsel in the Clifford Chance Perth office, specialising in construction, engineering and infrastructure disputes. And I'm here today with Spencer Flay, who's a partner and head of the Clifford Chance Construction Practice in Australia and a highly regarded specialist in construction, engineering and infrastructure disputes. Hi, Sean. Good to see you. And good to see you too, Spencer. Now, on the 1st of August 2022, the Building and Construction Industry Security of Payment Act 2021 comes into force, replacing the existing Construction Contracts Act 2004 for WA and bringing the Western Australian Security of Payment legal framework more into line with what has been called the East Coast model that applies in the eastern states of Australia, and amongst other things, imposing a mandatory security of payment regime in place of the current West Coast model regime, which emphasises freedom of contract, but can put contractors and subcontractors at a disadvantage. These changes have been the subject of much discussion in the construction industry, and are generally recognised to represent a watershed in the contracting environment in Western Australia, with significant implications for principals and contractors and subcontractors engaged in or investing in projects here. This change comes in the midst of an unprecedented, an unprecedented string of insolvencies in the Australian construction sector, which has been largely driven by severe COVID-driven increases in the cost of materials and labour, resulting in major losses on fixed price contracts entered into before the effects of COVID struck. So there's much to discuss here. So Spencer, let me start by asking you if you could please summarise the key changes to the security of payment law in Western Australia and to what extent this new act redistributes risk across the contractual chain. First, there's been changes to the type of construction contracts to which the act does not apply. It won't apply to single residential houses, contracts where the value is less than $500,000, contracts where the construction work is a condition of a loan agreement or forms a part of a loan agreement, guarantee or insurance agreement. The new Act also reduces the scope of the mining exclusion, so the Act will apply to all construction contracts carried out in Western Australia, except only where the contract is for drilling for oil, natural gas or minerals, or for constructing a shaft, pit or quarry for extracting minerals or other substances. And the new Act may also apply to projects located off the coast of WA, as it extends the jurisdiction of the Act to waters adjacent to WA that are within WA territorial limits and outside territorial limits if the particular contract is governed by the law of Western Australia. Now, these are pretty important changes as they significantly increase the number of construction contracts that are subject to the new Act, which were previously excluded from the operation of the old Act. And in particular, there's now a live question as to whether construction of FPSOs even outside of WA territorial waters will be caught by the new Act. Second, the new Act introduces a statutory test of fairness for time bars for payment or extensions of time. Third, it extends, expands the scope of some previously prohibited provisions, in particular paid if and when paid provisions. Fourth, and probably most significantly, as you've mentioned, Sean, 
The previous adjudication regime called the West Coast model has been completely replaced by a new regime which closely resembles the adjudication process in the New South Wales Security for Payment legislation. In other words, the new Act largely adopts the adjudication regime that applies on the east coast of Australia. The new Act also introduces a review mechanism where parties dissatisfied with an adjudicator's determination can, in certain circumstances, seek review by a senior adjudicator. This review mechanism has been introduced to hopefully reduce the number of dissatisfied parties seeking judicial review of determinations based on challenges to an adjudicator's jurisdiction. Fifth, the Act has changed the way in which payment claims are to be made, assessed and paid. The old Act was based on a model where the payment mechanism in the relevant construction contract largely dictated how claims were made and when they were to be paid. The new Act enshrines a statutory payment right that operates in parallel with the agreed contractual payment regime, requiring claims to be made and assessed in the form of a payment schedule. And finally, the Act also introduces provisions with respect to the security given by contractors to secure their obligations under construction contract. It introduces a claimant's right to a lien over unfixed plant materials for unpaid progress payments. It introduces offences for threatening or intimidating those entitled to make progress claims and introduces new obligations on principals and head contractors that hold retention as security. Um, so I think it's fair to say, Sean, that the Act does an enormous amount of new work. So what are the factors that have driven the Western Australian government to enact this new legislation? Well, the new Act has been in contemplation for some time. Um, its genesis lies in, in the Evans Review, which was undertaken in 2014. It draws heavily on the recommendations from the Murray report to the Commonwealth Government handed down in 2017. And it is ultimately the product of the 2018 Fiocco report to the WA State Government. So while the bill was initially introduced into Parliament on the 23rd of September 2020, it lapsed following the WA State election. However, as you've already noted, after a number of high profile insolvencies of contractors such as Jackson and Pindan, the bill was in, reintroduced into two, in 2021 and passed through the WA Parliament without any further consultation or significant amendments. Um, and this was the product of the protection of subcontractors moving to the very top of the McGowan government's agenda. So consistent with the imperative to bring the new act into operation quickly, it's to be introduced in tranches, with the first tranche to come into operation on the 1st of August 2022 um, in a couple of weeks time, the second tranche to come into operation on the 21st of February 2023, and the remaining provisions implementing a trust scheme for retention monies to come into effect on the 1st of February 2024. Thanks, Spencer. As you mentioned a bit earlier, the scope of the mining exclusion, which was initially narrowed in 2016, has now been narrowed further. What do you think are the likely impacts on the, on the mining and the oil and gas industries in Western Australia? It's a good question. Um, the effect of watering down the mining exclusion is that construction work that was previously excluded from the operation of the old Act is now captured. So the previous Act excluded from the definition of construction work, fabricating or assembling items of plant used for extracting or processing oil, natural gas, or any derivative of natural gas, or any, any mineral bearing substance. So this exclusion no longer exists. So the only two remaining exclusions are construction work for drilling, for the purpose of discovering or extracting oil or natural gas, or construction of a shaft, pit or quarry, or drilling for the purposes of discovering or extracting minerals. So while it was previously possible under the old Act to argue that construction work, say, in respect of the fabrication of a processing plant, fell within the mining exclusion, that argument is no longer available and that work is now all captured. Okay, thanks Spencer. So let, let's talk about the money. 
What do you see as the likely impact of the new mandatory payment adjudication process? Who benefits from this regime and who might find themselves placed at a disadvantage relative to the previous regime? I think it's fair to say that the primary purpose of the new Act is to rebalance project risk in favour of contractors and subcontractors. And that must mean that the new regime disadvantages principals and head contractors. In terms of the money, um, Deloitte Access Economics has published a report that estimates that the new Act will result in an economic benefit of some $1.6 to contractors and subcontractors, with a negative impact to head contractors and principals of some $1.2 billion. And in my view, one of the most significant costs of principals and head contractors will be the cost of contract administration and the cost of restructuring their accounting systems to comply with the reduced payment periods required by the Act. At least initially, I suspect that this will exacerbate the need and the demand for contract administrators, which will further tighten the labour market in a construction industry in WA, which has already seen substantial inflation for the cost of in the cost of labour. Um, in addition, the implementation of the retention money provisions in February 2024 will also impose trust obligations on principals and head contractors that just simply didn't previously exist. Okay, so we've we've talked about the money. Let's talk about time and in particular time bars. As you know, Western Australia has been at the forefront uh, of strict enforcement of notice-based time bars as conditions precedent to making claims for extra time and money under construction contracts since the CMA and W and uh, John Holland case back in 2016. But that's all about to change radically, isn't it? You're right, Sean. Um, I think it's fair to say that the law in Western Australia after CMA and John Holland represented the high watermark for the enforceability by principals and head contractors of contractual time bars to entitlement. And as you know, CMA is authority for the proposition that if a time bar is clearly articulated and contractually agreed, a contractor's entitlement is subject to strict compliance with the relevant notice requirements in the contract, irrespective of how draconian, to use the words of the trial judge, the outcome. So the new Act seeks to dial back the risk of draconian outcomes by introducing a statutory test of fairness for time bars. And it does so by giving a determiner the power to declare a time bar unfair if compliance with the relevant notice provisions in the contract is A, not reasonably possible, and B, would be unreasonably onerous. Now, it's important to note that a declaration that a time bar is unfair only applies to the claim in issue, so it doesn't void a contract's notification regime entirely. That's quite a dramatic change, Spencer. So in what type of scenario might this unfairness test be applied? So one theoretical scenario where a time bar may be declared unfair is in respect of a series of delay events which would give rise to a contractor's entitlement to extensions of time. So a very common notification regime for claims um, requires a contractor to notify of a potential delay event as soon as it becomes aware or reasonably become aware of the delay and then make a claim of, for an extension of time within a period of time, say 14 days, of the initial notice. And that claim would require the provision of all relevant information, including the impact of the delay on the critical path of the works by reference to the approved construction program. And then there's often a further obligation to update that claim every, say, 28 days if the delay event continues. Now, you can imagine a scenario where a number of potential delay events occur simultaneously or within a very short period of each other. And in that scenario, it may not be possible for a contractor to easily ascertain the impact of each delay separately on the critical path, particularly as the approved construction program would need to be updated for each delay event, depending upon whether the contractor is assessed to be entitled to an extension of time. 
So in that scenario, it would be very difficult for a contractor to comply with the requirement to submit its extension of time claims for each delay event with the required information, i.e. impact of the delay on the approved construction um, program, because there's so many delay events all occurring at the same time. So in that scenario, I could see a determiner declaring that compliance with the notification regime for extensions of time in that scenario would not be reasonably possible or would be unreasonably onerous. Does the Act offer any guidance on what is meant by not reasonably possible and unreasonably onerous? Indeed it does. So the new section 16.6 sets out a list of factors the decision maker must take into account. Now they include when the party required to give notice would reasonably become aware of the relevant event or circumstance, when and how notice was required to be given. So as you know, some of the AS standard form contracts require notice to be served in person or by post, where in reality on most projects, communications are an agreed platform such as AConnex or claim, uh, communications are done by email and increasingly by WhatsApp. And in those circumstances, it seems unlikely to me that a decision maker will uphold a time bar for a failure to strictly comply with a contract's notice requirements that the parties communicate in an entirely different way on site. Um, another factor is the relative bargaining power of each party entering into the contract. This assessment could have very different outcomes at various points in the contracting chain, as the relative bargaining power of a principal and a well-resourced uh, head contractor may be very different to the relative bargaining power of the same head contractor and its well, uh, less well-resourced subcontractors. Another factor um, decision makers must take into account is the rebuttable presumption that the party required to give notice possesses the commercial and technical competence of a reasonable competent contractor. Now that's interesting because most construction contracts require a contractor to warrant that they are a competent contractor. However, in arguing that a time bar is unfair, a contractor may adopt the position that it was not competent in that it had not employed a sufficient number of contract administrators to make its claims. Now, logically, that would mean it's in breach of its warranty, giving the principal a claim for damages. However, that damages claim would not be a payment claim under the Act and therefore would potentially not even be relevant to any adjudication application. Um, and one of the final factors that must be taken into account is if compliance with the provision is alleged to, is alleged to be unreasonably onerous. And there's no guidance as to what evidence must be led in, a, in support of that assertion. Um, these factors in section 16.6 also provide no guidance as to what weighting, if any, is to be given to these factors. So it's not clear if one factor is more important than another, and it's unknown how they're going to be applied by decision makers. And what makes this new section of the Act particularly interesting is that the statutory fairness test doesn't exist in any other SOPA legislation in Australia or indeed around the world. And for that reason, there's simply no judicial guidance on how these factors will be taken into account or applied. And that's interesting because this applica the application of this test isn't limited to just adjudications, but it is also to be applied by courts, tribunals and expert determiners. So that means this new test with respect to construction co uh, contracts governed by the law in Western Australia will need to be considered by judges and arbitrators. So as a result, I expect over the next five years, we'll see a lot of new case law on how this test is to be applied. Um, so the effect of the new test, which has been introduced in the context of a statutory adjudication reform, will, does have the effect of undermining the existing common law on time bars, as, at least as it's applied in Western Australia. Thank you, Spencer. Much to think about there. Um, what do you see as the biggest change in relation to the payment process? And, and what impacts will that 
uh, have principals and contractors? So the two biggest changes are firstly, the introduction of the payment schedule as the form in which a contractor must make its claims for progress payments and the requirement that a principal or head contractor must record its assessment of the progress claim in that same schedule. As those who are familiar with the East Coast model will know, the payment schedule issued by a principal or head contractor must contain all the reasons in support of their assessment. And the relevance of this requirement is that, is that if the assessment is disputed and it goes to adjudication, in that adjudication, the parties are limited to the content of the payment schedule so that the contractor is unable to introduce any new basis in support of its claims and the principal or the head contractor is limited to the reasons for its assessment in the payment schedule. And in my view, this is a very welcome change as the existing adjudication regime invites parties to conceive a variety of new and often very novel arguments in support of their positions, which simply weren't contemplated at the time the progress claim was made or assessed. And the unfortunate result is this often re uh, results in increased adjudication costs, rights to reply, and arguments about the application of natural justice. So the practical effect of this change, as I mentioned earlier, is that principals and head contractors are likely going to have to employ many more contract administrators to ensure that each payment schedule um, includes all reasons for their assessments, particularly where those claims, where those progress claims are disputed. Um, the second very significant change is the time for payment of progress claims. So under the old Act, time for payment was 42 days. Under the new Act, the time for payment by principals is 20 business days and 25 business days for head contractors. So this is a significant reduction in the amount of time we um, we know from and we know from speaking to a number of clients that has resulted in a significant cost in post as they've had to completely reconfigure their accounting systems. Um, and if a principal or head contractor fails to issue a payment schedule on time, then the progress claim becomes payable. In those circumstances, the claimant can make an application for adjudication, provided it gives the principal or head contractor notice of its intention to do so. Alternatively, the claimant can make a debt claim in, in a court of competent jurisdiction. So this is a new avenue for a claimant that did not previously exist under the old Act and begs the question about whether a respondent to a statutory demand, i.e. a claim for the debt, will be able to run any defence in circumstances where the Act deems an unassessed claim automatically payable. Again, I suspect the, act, the, the result is likely to create a, um, a lot of new case law. So, so following on from the payment process, what is the biggest change in relation to the adjudication process? Do you expect that this new regime will increase the volume of cases which are adjudicated from the current level? Um, so as I've already mentioned, the most significant change to the adjudication process is that arguments parties can advance in support of their positions are limited to those that are raised in the payment schedule. Some other important changes is that the time for a contractor to make an adjudication application has reduced from 90 business days to 20 business days. And the new Act also introduces a review mechanism where parties dissatisfied with an adjudicator's determination can, in certain circumstances, seek review by a senior adjudicator. One other change, which I'm sure will be welcomed by those who are involved in adjudications under the old Act, is that the new Act um, allows adjudication applications and responses to be delivered electronically and by email. Um, another substantial change is that under the old Act, a principal could bring an application um, against a contractor for an unpaid claim, so say for a claim for liquidated damages. Now, that ability for principals to claim has been removed and adjudications can now only be brought by contractors for progress claims for work performed under the construction contract. Um, 
In terms of the volume of adjudications, I anticipate there will probably be an initial increase as contractors and subcontractors seek to test the rebalancing of interest under the new Act. Whether that increased volume is sustained will largely depend on how well known the regime becomes. One of the challenges of the old Act was that the adjudication regime was pretty well utilised by the more sophisticated players in the market, but less so by those who had limited resources. And, and that's unfortunate because the Act was expected to assist them the most. So the challenge will be to educate the less sophisticated contractors and subcontractors of the benefit of the new Act. And I think that will largely dictate um, whether there will be an increase in volumes of adjudications. And does the new Act apply to the types of non-contractual claims for money that are often made in construction projects, such as claims for quantum merit or misleading and deceptive conduct? Um, so as with the previous Act, Sean, the answer is no. So the Act only permits a contractor to claim for the performance of work performed under a construction contract. So it doesn't include claims for damages or claims arising from causes of action that arise outside of the contract. How do you see the new Act changing how owners and contractors plan and manage their projects? And what are the key contractual changes the parties should be considering to take advantage of the benefits of this new regime or to mitigate its risks? As I mentioned earlier, I suspect the biggest change for how owners and head contractors manage their projects is the cost impost of having more contract administrators um, having to respond to payment claims and the reorganising of their accounting systems to accommodate the shortened payment periods. In terms of contractual changes, I suspect there will be a greater focus on making a contract's notification requirements less onerous and more achievable. And given a contractor's ability to meet its notice requirements will be relevant to the question of fairness, I expect there will be more focus on specifying key personnel and liquidated damages that may flow if a contractor fails to maintain an adequate contract management capability. And what are the factors that owners and contractors need to take into consideration in structuring their performance security and retention money arrangements under the new Act? So, Sean, as you know, the new provisions um, around guarantees and re uh, retention don't come into effect until the 21st of February 2023. So there's still some time. Um, however, before then, I expect that the because the new Act um, has said that there will be a mandatory five business days notification requirement before a party can call on a security. I expect that requirement will become the market position when contracts are negotiated even before February 2023. Um, also because of the trust obligations that will be posed on those that hold retention, I expect principals and head contractors will move away from retention as a form of security um, and towards favouring bank guarantees or a, a similar type of security. So thank you, Spencer, for that brief but comprehensive overview of some of the major changes to the security of payment regime in Western Australia. As we can see, principals, contractors and subcontractors will need to carefully consider how to deal with the new Act's impacts on their progress payment processes, contractual notices and time bars, performance security and retention and the adjudication process. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance Construction Team.